Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome listeners to the first installment in my Batman movie review series. Today I am reviewing Tim Burton's Batman. This is your host, Corbin. Now, Alan and I have already reviewed the Dark Knight trilogy. If you're curious about our thoughts on those films, I'll link to those below. You can go ahead and hear our thoughts, hear our recommendations for those movies. But specifically, I'm going to be focusing on Batman starting in 1989, Tim Burton's film, going all the way up to Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin. I have seen all four of these movies. Batman Returns is a bit of a blind spot for me. I didn't grow up with it like I did with this one. Batman Forever also is one I'm foggy about. Batman and Robin, same thing as well. So by and large, this is the one that I have the most experience with. The other three, I don't. So it's going to be interesting going through those movies and seeing how my thoughts have changed or evolved. Maybe I've softened a little bit on them over the years. Maybe I'll be even harsher on them. I have no idea. So you can come along with me. We're going to figure this out together. So giving you a roadmap there in case you wanted to go ahead and check out those Batman movies. So next week is Batman Returns. The week after that, Alan and I will be dropping our review for Jurassic World Dominion. Now, we've reviewed the Jurassic Park trilogy. We've also reviewed the first two Jurassic World films. Those are available to listen right now. So go ahead and check those out. Gear up for Jurassic World Dominion. Very curious to see how they cap off the trilogy. I don't know. We're going to find out in a few weeks. And of course, if you want to know the production for this film, box office, what people thought of it, how well it's lasted for almost 33 years. That's right. We are coming up very soon on this film's 33rd anniversary, believe it or not. That's all in your guide to Batman. That released last week. That's the first link in the description below. Go ahead and check that out. And while you're down there, we've got timestamps. We've got links to our social pages. We've got all kinds of great content down there. So go ahead and check that out all down below. I don't ever really remember seeing the trailer for this movie. Uh, at least it, it never stuck in my mind. But watching this trailer now, if it's back in 89 and I'm able to go see it, it, it was rated PG-13. Uh, it was considered, you know, a little too dark for the children. This was aimed at more of a teenage slash adult audience. I think the trailer is edited in a very, very poor way. I think the, the trailer's bad by and large. It looks like it was edited by a fourth grader who just learned Windows Movie Maker. I would still go see it. It provides enough action, but it's more of a demo reel, more so than a trailer. I'm honestly surprised Warner Bros. let this one slide uh, into people's living rooms and, you know, cinemas and whatnot. But this trailer, I, I mean, it's Batman. Come on. I love Batman. I'm their opening weekend. This trailer would not do it for me, though, unfortunately. So I was not alive back in 89. I wouldn't be born for a little less than six years at this point. You know, roughly five and a half years is when I would be born. I did see this movie in 2001, so that would be about 12 years after its original release. That's my earliest memory of seeing this movie was when I lived in San Antonio, Texas. I watched Batman with my dad. I would have been young at the time. 
Um, but I still really enjoyed it. I, I was a mature kid, so I could handle it. And I remember for Christmas that year getting the Batman toys, the Michael Keaton version. So I still own a couple different variants of the Michael Keaton Batman figures, which are really cool. I'm, I'm happy that I have those. But that's my earliest memory, and it's one I believe we picked up on VHS, and I watched it quite a bit. Not a whole lot, not a whole bunch. Honestly, I probably watched Batman the Animated Series, which really pulls a lot from this, more so than this movie, but I've seen it numerous times, many, many times over the years. All right, listeners, if you have not seen Batman, I'm going to go ahead and say it right now. Definitely go ahead and check out that film. It is streaming on HBO Max. It's now available on 4K physical and digital. Of course, I'm sure you can find it on Blu-ray and DVD. I actually own two copies of the Blu-ray. Of course, I own the VHS as well. It's readily available. It's very easy for you to find. Go ahead and check out the film and then come back and click play here in the podcast and we'll be ready to talk about it. Here is your 30 second plot summary. Batman has already been fighting crime in Gotham, but gangster Jack Napier is double-crossed by his crime boss one night and he's dropped into a vat of chemicals, turning his skin white, his hair green, and his lips red. Now calling himself the Joker, he plans to bring a smile to all Gothamites. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne falls in love with New and Town reporter Vicki Vale. The only problem, so has the Joker. After kidnapping Vicki, Batman must ascend to the top of Gotham Cathedral, Vertigo-style, to rescue Vicki. In the process, the Joker falls to his death while still laughing. Just because the Joker is gone doesn't mean Gotham may never need Batman again. In fact, he gave them the signal. Vicky realizes she'll have to share her life with Bruce's alter ego, the Batman, as he keeps watch over the city as credits roll. Now, I would be remiss if I did not talk about the opening of this film. It opens in a very mysterious way. The camera is moving through these dark corridors. That seems like there's lots of curves, they're oddly shaped, it's a mystery. What are we even looking at here? And of course, it's all to the impeccable, to one of, honestly, the greatest, probably the greatest scores of all time. Danny Elfman's score for this film is truly brilliant. And of course, we finally pull out, the camera pulls out to see it is in fact the bat symbol. Now, Burton on the commentary for the Blu-ray describes this as... We're kind of going through the mind of Batman. We're going through these corridors. We're really getting kind of, you know, symbolic here. And I think it's a fantastic way to open up the film and set the tone. We then immediately get the setting of Gotham City. We see it's very dingy. It looks kind of like New York pre-Rudy Giuliani era before he cleaned it up and was the governor there. It's dark. It's dingy. It's very dangerous. You know, you could get robbed. You could get mugged. There's prostitutes propositioning a, a dad or a family right there on the street. It's not a great place to be. And honestly, I'm, I'm getting some flashes of the new Batman movie, The Batman, how Gotham is still really bad. And I think Gotham is portrayed very well here. Whereas in Nolan's films, Gotham was more, well, more, I mean, it, it just looked like Chicago. I mean, that's where they filmed it. It felt more like more of a modern day city. This feels like kind of an amalgamation of things. We also wonder, is this Bruce Wayne? That's what I thought when I first saw the film. Is this young Bruce Wayne? You know, it's hard to think that they didn't do this on purpose. I'm sure they did. They want us to set up, you know, this kind of stuff happens in Gotham. Bruce wasn't an exception with his family being murdered. This kind of crime, you know, 
kids losing their fathers and being mugged. It's just a dangerous place. And Batman's there to clean it up and to stop these people. The only problem is apparently Batman is watching all of this happen and he doesn't stop them, but he does stop them later after, you know, the dad gets conked on the head. Uh, I think it probably would have made more sense if Batman would have stopped them in the middle of the crime. Um, but nevertheless, Batman has a, just an incredible introduction here. Probably my favorite introduction of any Batman that we've seen. It's so stylistic. It's so atmospheric. We really get to feel this otherworldly presence that people are thinking maybe this is some kind of creature come to life. I uh, love it. And he hangs the guy over the building and he pulls him close to his face and he says, I'm Batman. That right there gives me chills and it really sets the mood and tone for this movie. We then also go to the other iconic character in this, and that's Jack Nicholson, who Tim Burton describes as the Joker. He just is the Joker. Everybody, they, they say that was probably the best casting choice. Everybody knew he would be perfect for the role. And he really is. He really doesn't look down on this film. He really gives it his all, even though it is a comic book interpretation. But it it is a beloved comic book, finally come to life, finally, I think, given its due Whereas I do highly enjoy the 60s television series, this really is Batman for the grown-ups. This is not Batman for just the children. It is mature. But, you know, I'll bring that up here back in a little bit. I'll circle back to, is this a good bridge between a kid's Batman and an adult Batman? But to wrap up with Joker, he really is great. He really does provide something incredible. And he really was, everybody thought nobody could outdo his role until Heath Ledger came and brought a totally unique spin to it. And of, of course, Mark Hamill's Joker on the animated series, that's the most iconic Joker in my mind, that voice. I'll always think of him as the Joker, that Joker when I think of it. But nevertheless, Nicholson really delivers. There's also a strong noir sense to this film, which noir had been out of mainstream cinemas for decades at this point. But it, I do appreciate that Burton is pulling from classic films like noir films, and he's also pulling from some like universal monster movies where you kind of get this, you know, Beauty and the Beast style feeling when it comes to not just the Joker, but Batman as well, and kind of tapping into those feelings. He does a really great job of bringing that to modern audiences while, of course, providing his quirky flair that is very iconically Burton. One of the things that really surprised me this time around, and I think Nolan's films kind of changed everybody's mind on this, is that Bruce Wayne is more of, he is this rich philanthropist that does, you know, do a lot of donations, but he is out of the public eye. People just don't even recognize him. And I get it, this is the age before the internet, but there was new newspapers, you know, there is television. Apparently Bruce Wayne doesn't come on TV, he stays out of the newspapers, these reporters don't even know who he is. When Joker sees him, he doesn't even know who he is. People have to call out his name or he has to introduce himself. People have no idea who Bruce Wayne is. I thought that was a really unique choice to make this, you know, rich philanthropist guy. People don't know him. They're even having parties at his house and they have no idea what their host looks like. And I think that casting really helps as Michael Keaton who isn't a tall guy. He's not really a standout guy. He is able to really bring these varying emotions of kind of being this sly background character. He's a very, very pensive Bruce Wayne. 
I would say probably more pensive than any Bruce Wayne we've really gotten until maybe Robert Pattinson. But there is a unique dichotomy here of a smaller guy dressing up in this big intimidating suit and scaring the criminal underworld where if you just look at him as Bruce Wayne, there's really nothing to him. But once he transforms into Batman, that's when he becomes frightening. And I got to say, the casting is spot on. Michael Keaton truly delivers as Batman. And I know when they're making the film, Keaton's running around, Nicholson's running around. They're all wondering, is this movie going to be a flop? Is this movie going to really be goofy? And it wasn't that whatsoever. I mean, it was the biggest movie of the year. It was huge. And they did eventually come back and make a sequel, which we'll talk about here at the end of the show. But nevertheless, Michael Keaton, everybody thinks Keaton is so iconic as Batman. It's probably his most famous role. There also is a darker side to this Bruce Wayne, which we really haven't seen before. When he talks with Vicki Vale and she is constantly, you know, clamoring on about their relationship and he actually pushes her down and tells her to shut up. I know that surprised a lot of people and it did me too. And then once the Joker comes out and he takes, you know, the fire poker and he slams his vase and he yells, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. That's honestly one of the most memorable scenes in the movie for me. You see Nicholson's role. Nicholson is shocked. He jumps. We're all, we're all shocked as well. This kind of, you know, quiet, you know, unintimidating guy just blows up all of a sudden. And there really is this dark anger that comes out with him. Um, it, it doesn't always come out as Batman, but it's unique to see it come out through Bruce Wayne. That's also the scene we get the great line, have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? That's some sick thing the Joker always says before he kills people. And you kind of tap into his psyche that he maybe he views himself as the devil. I don't know. It's a weird line. It's a great line. But that, I think, is when the real crux of the movie comes into play. When you find out it is, in fact, the Joker who killed his parents. I don't believe that had ever been in the comic books since. I know that is not origin accurate. But nevertheless, this is, I believe, a new invention for this movie if they had put it in the comics earlier listeners email me at silverscreenguide95 let me know at gmail.com uh, that email is in the description below i'm curious to know if, if that ever came to be but nevertheless this is a great twist and it really brings the emotional impact for joker you know for batman to stop the joker there also is a surprising amount of gadgetry showcased in this film it is cool gadgetry i like the stuff he has but of course, his Batmobile really is iconic. It's kind of flamboyant. It's over the top. But nevertheless, it's really cool. It's really intimidating what it does. Of course, I love the bat plane. It's just a giant, you know, bat symbol that he flies around. Cool that they're bringing this stuff into the first one. And of course, you know, when they're making it, they had no idea that they're going to make any more. So they, they threw it all. They gave it their all. And I really commendate them for that. My favorite scene in the movie probably is when Batman falls through the skylight at the museum and saves Vicky from the Joker. We get Joker's line, where does he get those wonderful toys? I've always liked that. And that's when he jumps into the Batmobile. And then one of my other favorite scenes is right after that is when they're in the Batmobile and they're flying through these woods and they're driving so fast trying to get out of there. It's pretty obvious how that scene is shot, heavily influenced Nolan for when the Tumblr is going through the woods into the Batcave. Well, I got to say it one last one last favorite scene. There's so many in this movie with Batman putting on with Bruce putting on the bat suit. 
you know, I think we had already seen that in Rambo First Blood Part 2. That wasn't really new, the whole suit up thing. But they do it in, in just a non-hokey way. It's very serious. I think Elfman's score really is, you know, setting the mood. It's probably more so due to his score than anything. And the way they cast his face in the light and how he pulls his head up to the light and looks up, it's just incredibly shot. I love it. It always gives me chills. Now, I said I would circle back. Is this more of a kid's movie? Is this more of an adult movie? Well, I think it's kind of the perfect bridge between light and dark. It's a good introduction for kids into something familiar from childhood while seeing the adult side of the world without being, you know, degradating, without making it too harsh, too dark, too terrifying. I think they struck the right balance here, and I'm very impressed with that. And that's always kind of how I felt. Now, as an adult, in hindsight, I can see they did a great job of bridging between, you know, what people knew was the lighthearted Batman into something more darker, but more adult, but while still retaining, you know, some of that innocence there. Now, the movie was made on a $35 million budget, which is a really low budget for 1989. It does show sometimes, unfortunately. I'd be much more curious to see what they could do with a bit higher budget, but nevertheless, they still won the Oscar for production. On $35 million, it's very impressive. Burton admits it in the commentary that he's disappointed to see with some of the stuff how it's aged, especially the Joker falling to his death. You can look at that and see it. it's clearly animated. That always has looked bad, um, especially with modern technology, with 4K really getting to see all of this stuff. You know, on VHS, it's fuzzy or TV small. You don't get to see it as well. But nevertheless, these seams do show in this movie. Now, I, I do think there is some stuff in this that might be too hokey, but at the same time, maybe too frightening for children. It's weird. I've never liked the frying handshake sequence where the Joker shakes this Abraham lookalike guy's hand and it just melts him, essentially. It, it fries him to a crisp. Um, I know my dad always thought that was too frightening to show me. Um, also, there, there is just some semi-nightmarish stuff, like when the Joker has his uh, girlfriend's face eaten up by acid and whatnot. It's weird stuff. It, it's kind of ridiculous. I, I don't think all of the choices were great. I do think they struck a good enough balance as they could. There's also some real goofiness with the Joker taking time to get his henchmen to have these fur, kind of these like puffy fur bomber jacket coats. They're all matching uniforms. He has the Joker emblem from the old cartoon, it looks like to me. Puts it on van, almost merchandises. It's, it's really strange. My major issue with this Batman movie is Batman essentially ensuring the Joker's death and the way he does it. So I get it. They're hanging off a building. Joker is going to escape. I guess I would have appreciated Batman to figure out more of a creative way than essentially like, no, you're, you're not getting out of here, especially you're not getting out of here alive. And so the Joker's flying away and he shoots his thing and the Joker falls like falls like hundreds of feet to his death. Uh, of course, the concrete breaks. The Joker's body probably would have splattered into a million pieces. But nevertheless, it's just I know a lot of people had that issue. And this movie, Batman kills. He kills a lot of people, which is very different. I know that's never set right with people. Coming back in hindsight, seeing that Batman all but kills the Joker himself. It's not great. Burton describes this as kind of an operatic ending, and he's probably right. 
But nevertheless, it's not my favorite. And I do feel like Nolan's answer to this was how he ended Joker in The Dark Knight, where the Joker is about to fall to his death. I said, oh, I've seen all this before. And Batman saves him. I think he does that on purpose as an answer to this Joker's death not really sitting right with audiences. Tim Burton's Batman brings the character to life like audiences had never seen before or since. Blending comic book elements while not getting bogged down in origin stories, Burton smartly melds the Dark Knight and his worst nemesis into an emotionally compelling way. Featuring an Oscar-worthy score by newish movie composer Danny Elfman, phenomenal set design, and gripping performances, Batman is not just one of the best comic book movies ever made, but just a great movie in general. Burton, of course, brings his quirky flair, but most of all tries to put his characters in real-life emotional circumstances. He breaks fairly new ground here, and it's an impressive effort. This one has always had a special place in my heart, and still does for good reason. Batman really has held up nearly 33 years later. Batman receives 8 stars out of 10, with a strong recommend. Now, I have answered this question already, but I definitely have this one in my collection, and if I didn't, I would go pick up the 4K. I can't say I'd pick up the 4K box set of all four movies, but definitely this one I would own on 4K. Now, if you're wondering if you should listen to the commentary or not, I don't think it's necessary. I listened to it for this review. So if you see Burton's commentary on there, you pick up a couple interesting tidbits, but I don't think it's enough to warrant for the entire two hours. There are loads of extras on the Blu-ray, though, so those are worth checking out. Now, for other recommendations, I'm actually going to be recommending you three episodes from the TV series, Batman the Animated Series, that I think nicely tie into this and bring a lot of elements from there. The first one is The Joker's Favor. That's just a great Joker episode in general. Probably not a lot to do with this one, but nevertheless, that's one you have to watch uh, as far as the Joker character goes. Now, there's also one called The Last Laugh. That one pretty much brings the gas element from this one and utilizes that. It, it's a great episode. And my final recommendation is The Laughing Fish. I think that ties in nicely with this because of the whole laughing element and kind of driving you insane and putting this big grin on your face. Now, originally, Burton wasn't going to return for a sequel. He Burton is the kind of guy that doesn't really do sequels. He always wants to do a new IP or do something different, but WB promised him more creative control. So four days shy of three years, Batman returned to theaters, but that's a story for next week. Well, listeners, the question after the show, who is your favorite live action Joker? I think it's probably Heath Ledger for me. This is the sentimental kind of nostalgia pick for me. And of course, Cesar Romero is just a classic Joker in general. My favorite Joker of all, though, is Mark Hamill's, like I said earlier, but Nicholson's truly gives a great performance. I'm curious to know what you think, so make sure to email me. That question is listed below along with the email, and I'm looking forward to hearing back. All right, listeners, thank you for joining me on my review of Batman. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and make sure to leave a five-star review. It's a great way, a great free way, I should add, to help out the podcast. And make sure to stay tuned for next week, same time, same bat channel, for my review of Batman Returns.
The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.